0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes, where we are covering the recent news that a CRISPR-based test to diagnose COVID-19 disease has recently been issued an emergency use authorization or an EUA from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which is responsible for regulating and many of the policies around both diagnostics, therapeutics, treatments, everything. So that's the first piece of news. The second kind of piece of news here that's really interesting and why this is on the show, because we don't talk about research. We talk about things that are in practice. It's a news show, is that actually for CRISPR, it's one of the earlier practical cases we've seen where CRISPR is being used as a diagnostic and not just a therapeutic. And a lot of people in the bio world just kind of quickly say diagnostics and therapeutics as like shorthand for trying to figure out what's wrong. And then therapeutics for fixing the thing that's wrong. So that's a high-level context. Let me now introduce our a 6 Z experts, general partner Jorge Conde and biodeal team partner Andy Tran. Let's just start off by talking about why this matters from your vantage point.
1: Well, I think there's two aspects to this that are interesting. The first one is the fact that we're broadly seeing emergency use authorizations being applied to combat COVID with as many tools as possible. The second is from a technology standpoint, CRISPR is really a pretty broad toolkit that has a lot of applications and uses in biology. A lot of people think first and foremost about CRISPR as a new modality for treating disease as a therapeutic or as a form of a therapeutic. This is a great example of being able to use the same technology as a form of diagnostic, as a way of diagnosing disease. And the reason for that, of course, is I think there's a broad recognition that we need to have broad-based testing to really quickly and safely reopen the
2: country. Right. That's a bigger implication. Yeah. We always talk about CRISPR as this engineering platform. And on the diagnostic side, every time we have an outbreak, we're pretty much one step behind in what we don't have a rapid diagnostic to detect that new organism. But having a very precise and specific way of just actually going to a certain genetic sequence, having this type of platform readily available can basically allow us to spring up new rapid testing tools each time this might occur. And this is really exciting because it represents pretty much the first time a CRISPR-based product has been authorized for official use in healthcare. And this is huge and a milestone in many ways because it comes years before anyone was even expecting this.
0: We did a post on testing, which people can find on our website, I'll link to it in the show notes. But anyway, we talked about a breakdown of taxonomy, what are the different types of tests out there that are available and we kind of put this in the what's coming section. So what's really interesting to your point is it's actually coming now faster than people think, But let's quickly talk about specifically how it works and talk about some of the practical aspect of it.
1: At a very high level, if CRISPR is a, among other things, a biological find function.
0: Ooh, I like that analogy.
1: Yeah, this is a way to basically find the presence of virus RNA in a sample or virus genetic material in a sample and therefore test positive or negative. And so it has the potential of being quick and of being accurate. And potentially even of being simple to use and cheap and all of those things.
0: So it's using the CRISPR toolbox to find as an analogy from computing, like find and replace, but in this sense, find, match it, and then creating some kind of a signal that can be read out. And that goes to this idea of rapid testing. I believe the claim that this company has is that you can actually get results within an hour. Can you guys talk about how that's technically possible and more about how this works?
2: Yeah, for sure. So really quickly, how this test really works is that, first of all, you take the specimen from a nasal swab. And the interesting thing and how it works is after you amplify the DNA in the pool, in this case, the specific CRISPR nuclease, Cas13, it would hunt for a specific viral genetic sequence that you program into it. In this case, they program two different genes. One gene that helps the virus assemble itself and another gene is a precursor of an enzyme that helps the virus copy itself. So it would look for those two SARS-CoV-2 genetic sequences. Once it finds those sequences, as we all know, CRISPR does a great job into snipping those sequences really well. This particular variant of the CRISPR protein, Cas13, once it finds The sequence of choice, it gets really excited and indiscriminately just cuts all the things around that sequence as well. And so what you do is in the sample, you also put in these reporter molecules or basically these fluorescent probes, which are activated when they're cut. So essentially in the sample, you would have your nasal swab sample and your fluorescent probes. Once the CRISPR detects it, they would emit this chemical reaction that causes this fluorescent emission. And then once it's fluoresced, you could basically have this sample read off in any fluorescent plate reader that you'll find in a standard lab. And from that, you're able to quantify that viral load.
0: It's basically like putting a color signal that can then be read out on a test strip.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: And this makes me actually think of pregnancy tests where you have like pink or red lines and whatnot.
1: Yes, think of it very simply as what a CRISPR-based diagnostic allows you to do is to introduce the CRISPR machinery into a sample. If the CRISPR machinery finds the two genes it's looking for, it cuts the genes, and the net effect of that happening is it sends off a visible signal.
0: That makes sense. So now why is this so much faster than the PCR technique? And we don't have to actually break down the PCR technique. For regular listeners of 16 minutes, you can go find it in our previous coronavirus episodes. But in this case, why is CRISPR so much faster than PCR? Like, how can you get one-hour results?
2: So the crux of the reason is in the RT-QPCR reaction, you actually have to, first of all, reverse transcribe that viral sequence back into your DNA. And that amplification process already you know takes a couple of hours. And then after that, then you have to do the formal amplification process before you actually get it up to speed. So there's basically two more separate amplification steps and chemical reaction steps that you have to do. Compared to the CRISPR test, after some basic amplification, because of the specificity of the nucleases, you get to be able to find this sequence much faster. And the reason for that as well is that it's able to do so at a much lower limit of detection because the fluorescence emission would also amplify the signal for you.
0: So it's basically much faster by cutting out steps, but it's actually not relying on creating many, many extra copies of things. It needs less of the substance in order to find the thing, simply put.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's a one step process. I mean, a lot of the RT PCR tests, you actually have to take the sample, you have to reverse transcribe it back to DNA and then amplify it again. So there's actually more steps and more reagents, and it just takes more time.
0: You reference the specificity, and the, we talk a lot about specificity and sensitivity when it comes to testing. How does this fit on the sensitivity side?
1: So, first of all, when we think about sensitivity and specificity, in the case, you know, when you're talking about diagnostics, when you say the word sensitivity, what you're talking about is can you find people that have, that are truly positive for the test? So that's the, can you get true positives? And then on the flip side of that, on specificity, is the test able to identify people who don't have whatever you're measuring? So the true negative. So there's always a bit of a trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. In this case of CRISPR, there's a logical argument to be made that because they're looking for very specific genes that belong to a virus, if the CRISPR machinery works correctly at identifying those genes and only those genes, then therefore should have a pretty high sensitivity. And I think that's what's been claimed thus far. What's really interesting is what you want to optimize for depends on what it is you're testing for. So in the case of testing for virus, you want to make sure that you don't have a high false negative rate because you don't want to tell people that they're not carrying the virus when they in fact they are and could be spreading.
0: Right. Whereas it'd be totally okay if someone thought, it'd be sad and depressing and scary if you thought you had it and you didn't. But that's an error you'd gladly take over the other error.
1: Right. But now to go to the other end, on the antibody test side, if you give someone an antibody test, really what you want to know is, have they been exposed to the virus? do they carry antibodies for the virus? In other words, does their immune system have a memory of having seen this virus and be able to react in the the future? And then theoretically, are they therefore immune to this? Now, in that case, what you don't want to have is a false positive test, right? Because you don't want to tell people they've been exposed, then they change their behavior and they are, in fact, at risk.
0: They think they're immune, but they're not, right.
1: Exactly. And that assumes that antibodies confer immunity and there's a lot that we still don't know. But it is really interesting. In the case of a viral test, you want to avoid the false negative in the case of an antibody test, you want to avoid the false positive. Now, obviously, you want to have as perfect a test as possible, but if you have to have a trade-off, that's where the trade-offs would happen. One thing that I would say is, you know, when you think about testing in general, like there's a lot of talk about the need for testing to open up the economy. That's in the news every day. You know, the way I would think about it at a very simplistic level is for us to do that well, a test needs to be specific. It needs to be scalable. And it needs to be sensible. And what I mean by that is the test has to perform well. It has to be able to tell us who's sick and who's not sick, who's been exposed and who's not been exposed. So that's the sensitive specific side. It needs to be scalable. The only way this matters is if we can do this at massive scale across the country. And sensible, it needs to be something that is economically viable, but it also needs to be something that can be done in a real-world setting. Practically. Right. practically, right? So you have to be able to collect the sample. You have to be able to run the test. You have to be able to get the sample to the test or the test to the sample. Like All of these logistics matter. And so one of the things that I think is very important about this news with CRISPR is this, I think, is an important addendum to the menu because it has the potential to look pretty good on a lot of those
2: factors. As of right now, most of the tests that are received clearance are processed actually in labs as well. So you would do your sample swab, you'll do that fluorescent reaction, but this would have to be sent back to a centralized lab.
0: We're still not at the point yet where we can do this in a decentralized manner, like at home versions yet.
2: Yeah, it's still not processed at home yet. One of the exciting things that the company is working on is how do we make this decentralized? And so, you know, shifting from fluorescent probes to actually making an at home pregnancy like test you can use the same concept and have the chemical reactions happen on a piece of paper and so you could actually have this lateral flow chemistry and they might have to send you a little thermal block to keep the reaction at a stable temperature but you know people are working on on those things to make it you know entirely at home
1: This is one of the eternal debates for diagnostics and there are trade-offs between the two like everything else is do you need to bring the sample back to where the test can be done or can you bring the test to where the sample is collected the first example you know these sort of laboratory based tests are easier to get up and running the second case are more difficult to essentially engineer but once you do are obviously much more broadly distributable
0: That's great. And just to be clear, they claim 100% accuracy, but they have not released any clinical data yet to prove that. And so
2: that's right. So time will tell
0: that needs to be validated.
2: Yeah. And by the way, I think that's an
1: important point to make. You know, this whole concept of emergency use authorization is not the same thing as an approval. You know, it's kind of like, What happens in court where there's different burdens of proof, I think the burden is in specific language something like you need to have reasonable belief that it could be safe and effective. And the other thing is that emergency use authorization, as the word implies, is also temporary. So while this is an important milestone for things like this CRISPR testing application, this isn't the same thing as a formal approval. And so that's just a lower burden of proof, which is why the FDA is willing to grant these things in extraordinary circumstances so they can move more quickly. It also means that over time we will learn more and will be proven out whether something is effective or not in a given use case.
0: Right, we're getting actually real-world evidence in practice by people doing it, not just in clinical trials and in labs. And we actually cover that whole topic of the role of real-world evidence in the previous episode of 16 Minutes as well. So in the EUA case, there is some kind of a shortcut to get things out faster with, you know, reasonableness. But to actually prove something, what would the remaining steps be to actually be formally approved in the future with things like this?
1: Oh, they would have to run a large controlled trial for the test to demonstrate that it's in the case of a diagnostic, right, there's a lower bar for safety and efficacy because there's less risk of actually having harm inside the body.
0: Right. Unlike a therapeutic, which is a treatment that does something in the
1: body. Exactly. But you still have to show that the test is accurate and replicable and all of those things that matter for diagnostics. So you just have to show that the test performs to spec.
2: That's right. Right now, the EUA is obviously still in effect, but if there was a day where this would subside, they would have to do a formal, depending on the severity of the type of diagnostic, a 510k process or a PMA, which is a pre-market approval. And so run through those big pivotal clinical trial steps for a usual diagnostic. I think one of the things that people are trying to plan right now is that they have this EUA in place, which is great because we need as much testing as we can, but in tandem also start to prepare to run those pivotal PMA regulatory steps as well, just to get it ready for prime time.
0: So that was a useful breakdown of what the EUA is and isn't. But one question I have, because the three of us talked about this in a previous episode of 16 Minutes about clinical trials for CRISPR coming of age and some of the policies being made for germline editing. Jorge, you mentioned a really interesting anecdote that George Church shared, your former mentor and partner and pioneer in gene editing, where ironically slowing things down actually led to other development becoming more effective. And then on the flip side, Andy, you're pointing out here that we're actually speeding things up. So in a way, the pandemic is making things happen faster. So I'd love to get a quick pulse check from both of you on what does this mean for CRISPR overall, not just within the context of the pandemic, but where we are on the arc of policy and regulation playing out.
1: One is it's fantastic to see that this technology Can be used in an important application in a rapidly emerging situation. It'd be very hard to sort of spin up a new diagnostics platform for something like this. And I think this speaks to some of the strengths of what CRISPR can potentially do. The second thing I would say is to George Church's point, this is perhaps a bit hopeful, but I think one of the great things that would emerge from this is if broad based diagnostic applications of CRISPR emerge from this pandemic. That likely also means that we just get better at CRISPR. And so improvements in performance of the technology will have eventually virtuous cycle effects on how we think about using it in a therapeutic setting where the bar for safety and the bar for efficacy is necessarily going to be higher. So if this is a way to better tune how CRISPR works and how we work with CRISPR, that would, of course, be a net positive.
2: Yeah, because thinking about the core pillars of medicine, you have the therapeutics, diagnostics, and prevention. You know, therapeutics aspect, there's already been a slew of small CRISPR studies in the clinic already. And so we'll have a lot of human proof points on the therapeutic efficacy. Now we've leafprog probably a few years in the diagnostic front for it. And then also on the prevention front, because of the precision and engineering aspect of CRISPR, people are also not even dreaming, but actually making potential new vaccines on CRISPR. Obviously, that might unfortunately not happen for this pandemic. But for sure, this would be extremely useful for future pandemics to come because every time we have a new flu or new epidemic breakout, you're always doing this specific guessing game to make these vaccines. But because of CRISPR, we can target actually precise sequences. You could essentially make even universal vaccines, if you want. So
0: this is something we just covered in the A6 and Z Journal Club, the most recent episode. We talk about a recent paper that talks about CRISPR-Cas for prophylactic uses for coronaviruses and influenza. And that's actually talking more about research. To your point, it's not happening right now. And this show is about the news and what's happening right now. But I do really encourage people to listen to both episodes so you get a sense of this arc of what's coming from research to practice. So question then, what is the significance of the shift of CRISPR being used after people have been talking about it for decades now for therapeutics? into diagnostics. I'd just like to hear why is this so interesting besides the fact that it can actually also reinforce the therapeutic use case.
1: So look, I think one of the profound aspects here is a lot of the problems we face as a civilization. One of the things this pandemic has shown is that some of our biggest problems will be biological in nature. And I think what CRISPR represents is a real technology, a platform to enable us to detect, to see to manipulate, to intervene with biology in very precise ways. And so I think one of the things that is a big development here is the fact that a virus appears virtually overnight. Sequencing technology enabled us to generate a digital version of that virus. The sequence for the virus went around the world much faster than the actual virus did.
0: Yeah, we first started talking about coronavirus in mid-January on this show. And it was actually fascinating that the papers were coming out much faster than we had even seen the first case of community spread in California.
1: Exactly. So that's a big deal. I think one of the promises here for CRISPR is this idea that you can take a technology that originally evolved in nature for bacteria to detect viruses and protect themselves against viruses and repurpose that for humans to do the same. I think there's something very poetic about the fact that we are harnessing a tool that bacteria have used to detect and have memory and fight against viruses for our purposes as well.
0: We talk a lot about biology, not only being in the human body, but in different industries like manufacturing, food, et cetera. Is it possible that this kind of diagnostic, this sort of find function of CRISPR in a very fast and efficient way could help in the future with things like surface detection, goods and packages, like is meat contained?
1: We've seen a lot of pitches of companies where like literally one of the early forks in the road that they think about is, should we be doing detection for human health applications? Or should we be thinking about food safety, any number of things? Yeah. All the time, yeah. If you know what you're looking for, like if you have a sequence for something that you want to detect, theoretically, it's pretty easy to generate the guides for CRISPR to apply it to that. Like this should be a pretty rapid thing to change the cassette out to test for new things.
0: Great. Bottom line for me, you guys, how should we think about this news and what it means for the space?
2: This kind of sets in stone CRISPR really coming of age. We talked about this being the first time CRISPR-based products has really been authorized for use in real healthcare. And then we also always talk about this engineering toolbox concept for CRISPR. And it just shows the versatility of this toolbox and and really helps us imagine this new future in healthcare where single tools now are not just drugs, or there's not another single modality for just diagnostics. There's engineering platforms that could be applied to the entire spectrum and value chain of biology. I think
1: one important takeaway from all of this is that this is an all hands on deck moment. And so if you are a builder and you're building something that can be helpful here, I think there's been seldom a time in recent history where there are more tailwinds to support innovations and to speed them to get them to where they need to go as quickly as possible.
0: Thank you so much for joining this segment of 16 Minutes, you guys, thank you.
2: Thank you, Solomon. Thanks so much, Sona.